Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Way Back When History Show with Nancy and Lisa, the mother-daughter travel team and publishers of Big Blend Magazines. Oh, and I tell you what, if you love James Michener or authors like Wilbur Smith, right, Nancy Wilbur Smith, one of our favorites? Right. Uh, especially having lived in South Africa and, and Kenya. That's kind of one of our favorite authors. Um, you're going to enjoy the novel. It's called Seventh Flag. It's a debut novel by Sid Ballman Jr. And we're excited to have Sid join us to talk about the novel. It follows a white family and a Muslim family in a small West Texas town. And Nancy and I have been traveling all around this area. And so excited to chat with him because it, it touches on, the novel touches on some of the places we've been, but also really takes a look at uh, unity and and maybe non-unity as well throughout the years in, in this country. So Sid is a fourth generation Texan. He is a Pulitzer nominee and a veteran reporter. He's covered four major wars and traveled with two presidents and four secretaries of war during his career. And I mean, it's an outstanding career. I encourage you to go to his website, sidbaldman.com. And I'm going to spell that just to prove I can spell. It's S-I-D. B-A-L-M-A-N, SidBallman.com. So welcome, Sid. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're excited to have you here. Nancy and I uh, both are really enjoying your book. It's riveting, um, but it does, it does go on the dark side of things, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not, um, well, all historical novels have to do that, right? <laughs> well, life has that side to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, you, the first thing, you know, we started to read, and I want you to give everyone an overview, but I think it's really important at the beginning of it. You talk about, um, you know, Jefferson Davis. I know uh, there's Fort Davis in West Texas, uh, just out, you know, near Big Bend, between Big Bend and Guadalupe Mons National Park. And, you know, you talk about him, and then all of a sudden, here we have all these camels coming to the region, including West Texas, and Nancy and I, um, you know, we we're here in Yuma, Arizona today, just down the road from Quartzsite, Arizona, where there's the High Jolly Memorial, and this has to do with camels being used in the military. And when I bring this up, I've I've always had a hard time finding information and and getting people to understand that there were camels here, but apparently there were, and you know that story, and it's in your book, and it's tied to Texas. Well, let me take you back on that. Um, if you're if you're there in Yuma, you may have seen a few camels loping around the desert um, yep. and wondered why. <laughs> so, yeah. and that uh, did a lot of research. I was there where not too far from where you are, and it all goes back to the middle 1800s, 1853, actually. Um, um, meeting in the White House um, between President Franklin Pierce, um, uh, a very young president known for innovation and his Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis from Mississippi. And they had this notion 
um, and an experiment they wanted to do to incorporate camels into the U.S. cavalry. The idea being that, uh, you know, they could do well in desert environments. They didn't require as much water or food as uh, horses that can live on uh, indigenous vegetation, creosote, cactus, mm. um, and they could go go a long time. So what they did in that White House meeting was to uh, ask Congress for 30000 the, the enormous amount of $30,000, seems sort of quaint today, uh, probably spend that much money on coffee in a week in the White House. And, um, and they launched their project. They sent uh, ships over to the uh, Middle East and North Africa, um, brought back thousands of camels, hundreds of uh, camel handlers, Arab uh, Muslim camel handlers, landed in uh, Indianola, Texas, just south of Houston, and made their way up into the desert southwest to uh, try it out. Wow. And um, interesting project, um, had a lot of ramifications, but it ultimately failed. Um, and it failed for really three reasons. Um, one, um, camels are ornery animals, and they do not get along with horses. Um, the second was that the uh, camels, the cavalry, these are pony men, um, didn't see camels quite fitting into their brand. Uh, you know, they couldn't see themselves loping across the desert with camels. <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> the Civil War came along and the next president canceled it. But what that left behind were camels. Um, and a lot of them, uh, all of them were sold to circuses or to prospectors. Um, and um, these Arab Muslim camel handlers, and they put down roots, uh, made their way into Texas. And that's one of the reasons why Texas has more Muslims than any other state in the country. Oh. And um, yeah, which of course is a major, major theme in the book. And if people go to Quartzsite, Arizona, um, not too far from Kingman, where you all were recently, um, they'll see a monument to um, this occurrence. There's a monument actually to a man. Um, his name was Haji Ali, but you know, in America we give everyone nicknames, so they called him Hajali. Um, and that monument is sort of, of course, pyramid-shaped stones with a plaque on it and a camel on the top to to high jolly i love this i you know it, and Funny. people i know it we everybody people thought we were so confused and they look at that <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like maybe you had started a cocktail hour a little early yeah that, well you know we do that you know well you, you understand you're a reporter <laughs> not just it, you know it, it to me what, what's interesting too is the ties between west texas and actually the area we are you know going and and some of the areas we covered like central california there there was like that migration also for agriculture and uh del city uh which is your main town in 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 the book um that's interesting too. It's right outside Guadalupe National Monument, a uh, national park, excuse me. And so that was an agricultural community too. And, and a lot of people never think you can do that in the desert. Well, you know, and you raise another major theme in the book. Um, of course, um, West Texas, um, being a Texan and having spent a lot of time in West Texas is one of my favorite spots uh, mm. in the world, actually. 
But Dell City, a little town of 432 people with actually some quite iconic families, um, sits on top of an aquifer, a 100 square mile aquifer, fed by snowmelt from the Sacramento Mountains in New Mexico, just beyond the Guadalupes. And um, a, um, um, so it, it, it lends itself to agriculture. Um, and one of the, the, the main sources of tension in the book, something I wanted to um, bring into the book since uh, natural resources can be such a driver for poverty and migration and even radicalism, which of course is a mm. central theme in the book, radicalism and violent radicalism. Um, and I researched that story a bit, and it turns out that um, one of the families on which um, a family in the book was based, a family named the Laws, um, an actual family there, the Lynches, um, um, the, the, the um, founder of that family, if you will, moved from the Central Valley after World War II uh, to Dell City because of the aquifer. And um, built this enormous uh, farming concern, um, and uh, you know, sort of discovered this aquifer. And they got to thinking, and over the generations, and the book covers four generations, four generations of their family, that they might be sitting on a commodity, mm. um, which of course water, water is. And um, the whole issue of um, um, owning that water and using it uh, came down to a central question, actually a real real court case that made its way to the Texas Supreme Court involving this family uh, and Rick Perry, the governor at the time and others, a very colorful, classic Texas backroom kind of story. Um, the, the big landowners felt that they had the right to pump as much water as they could mm -hmm. and use it as they wished. The smallholder farmers, the one and two acre farmers, subsistence farmers, um, were concerned they'd run out of water. And they argued that um, the, uh, you were only entitled to as much water as you had pumped on average each year over 10 years. And after much wrangling, uh, the Supreme Court decided that so-called right of capture, which is a term of art, um, ruled and that the uh, farmers could pump as much and do what they wanted with it, which resulted, as many suspected, in that family, the Lynches, turning around and selling the water rights to El Paso, city of El Paso, 80 miles wow. to the west, for, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Oh. It sounds like the Colorado oh. River drama, too. You know, and that's, yeah. the, well, it, this is what's interesting, too, when you think about the generations that you've covered in the book and and what's going on now, I, I see like we're, it, history keeps going in that rep, rep, repetitive cycle. And I think that's also, I think your book is relevant of today. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. You mentioned the Colorado. Um, I've gone down Grand Canyon, Colorado River many times and talked about it. One of my favorite things to do. But the reason that um, the Lynches relocated to Dell City was because they kind of got snookered in the Owens River water controversy in California, um, mm. where um, Mr. Mulholland um, you know, wrangled his way to get water diverted and sold to Los Angeles to, mm -hmm. you know, 
to water palm trees and so forth. And he was determined not to repeat that mistake or rather to take advantage of what Mr. Mulholland did. And that's what he did with uh, in West Texas. Wow. The water thing is, is crazy. They just, um, it's been a battle that we started covering out in Cadiz, which is just, to, it's in the Mojave Desert just north of 29 Palms. So it's kind of between Joshua Tree and, and um, Mojave Preserve. It's, it is part of that off of Route 66. When you drive through there, it's, you know, you think, oh, there's nothing there, yet there's some, they're actually raising palm trees and stuff out there too, date palms. And so LA and Orange County wanted that water underneath the desert. And they're like, there's nothing there. And it- Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. So there was this huge battle, and I think they only now, the National Parks Conservation Association did a lot of work, won that. And I, it was a massive battle between that and massive solar, pro, uh, solar plants coming into the same area. And they look at the desert and they think that, you know, what, it's just a big patch of sand, not realizing <laughs> the network of what's going on underneath and how it's vital to, you know, all the different animals and the plants and things like that. So it, the water thing in the desert is fascinating, but like you're saying, there's the aquifers and, you know, you always think about the Middle East and how do, you know, how do the camels make it? How, you know, Africa, how did this giraffe make it? And it's just, it's fascinating. And I think it shapes people, water shapes people. And that's, you know, it's interesting because you've got the water thing and that's very Michener style, right, Nancy? You always talk about that, yeah. with James Michener. always about the water. <laughs> always the water. It's always the water. Well, you have to have water. It's the source. So, you know. And, you know, under, not to get too wonky here, but um, underlying this issue of water is the issue of power, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. electric power, but the power that people have or don't have. And uh, when I talk about radicalism um mm -hmm. the um much of the root of that stems from a feeling of powerlessness hmm. whether it's uh power um to do something as mundane as uh, get a date with a girl um you know there's this whole um movement they call themselves the incels um that are you know abstinent abstinent but not by choice um and radicalized um and if you look at some of these manifestos that these you know these lone wolf shooters write you'll see many references to that and so powerlessness whether it's over your ability to 
water a couple acres of sorghum or to get a date with someone or to vote, have your vote counted, you know, radicalizes people. And that's, um, while the water issue and many others in the book are interesting on their own, they're all making the case for how people are explaining the case for how people and why people today are becoming radicalized um, and, and, and not having this power that's so important over mm. our own lives. Mm. It does seem, though, that a lot of, I don't know, like today, when you say, if you say Muslim, <laughs> people look at you like suspicious, like, you know, there's, there's such um, a misunderstanding of, of a group of people because of their chosen religion and it's it's funny we used to live in Kenya in fact we we actually stayed with the Muslim family for quite a while and they were just fine they're nice people and they're honest and hardworking and you know it, it then we come back to this country and there's this this hatred for them based on absolutely not even knowing any Muslim people <laughs> it's, it's odd mm-hmm. well um so you know, another major theme in the book, and, and I'll just digress a second to talk about it. Um, so what I had hoped to do in this book was to um, emphasize the opposite of that, um, mm-hmm. whether it's Mexican or Muslim or Jewish or whatever, um, that there are commonalities in what we do. This country has more commonalities and differences. I mean, it's it's kind of trite, but we're all immigrants, um, mm-hmm. and so that's right. why I thought that's why um, I have these two families working together to build this empire on the high desert. The the laws, uh, the iconic white family in West Texas, and the Zarkans, uh, the these two, the um, who immigrated from the Middle East, a Muslim, Syrian Muslim family, and. Um, you know, I, I sort of gathered yarn on this story for a long time. I spent a lot of time in Muslim countries. And, um, but what really kind of, you know, when the story really sort of came together for me, there were really two things that um, occurred to me. Um, in my, um, I worked for a large corporation until a few years ago, um, an international development firm, not a real estate firm, but one that implemented large aid projects on behalf of governments and government Mm. agencies, U.S., the British, the European Union. And, uh, you know, as a journalist or as someone with a lot of experience in the web and web-related activities, um, they brought me in to start a division there that focused on what they saw as a growing business opportunity, to put it bluntly which was this rise of violent radicalism. So much which takes place on the web in these back rooms and Mm -hmm. chat rooms of 4chan, uh, World of Warcraft, uh, even Spyro the Dragon. And so that was kind of my inroad there. And we worked with violent gangs in Latin America. We worked with ISIS recruitment in Minneapolis. Uh, We worked with different, different groups all over the world. Developed a bunch of diagnostics Diagnostic tools, uh, heat mapping, social media sentiment analysis, public you know, standard public opinion research methods, um, and what we were starting, what we saw in other countries, Syria, Yemen, um, Mali, um, 
we were starting to see in America. That is this this rise of this disease, really. This, if you think of it as a public health issue, this rise of violent radicalism. So that got me to thinking about this book. The second thing, um, you know, I was sitting in front of YouTube. All important things these days happen in front of YouTube. <laughs> And I was watching a um, documentary about a football team in Dearborn, mm. Michigan, huge Muslim population. And it was an all-Muslim football team. And this was done just after 9-11. So they were going through the stigmatization of um, being Muslim in America after the, the mm. large, greatest terrorist attack on this country, um, an act of war, if you will. Mm. Um, but they were also going through their two-a-day practices, these, these really hard late summer, early fall practices where you practice twice a day to get ready for the season. And they were doing it during Ramadan. Um, Ramadan, for those mm -hmm. in your audience who don't know, is that time of fasting from dawn to dusk, no mm -hmm. food and no water during that time. Oh, wow. So these young men, these young men were enduring that, those two things. Wow. Um, at the same time and that so that really clicked it in for me um that the way to tell this story would be to show these commonalities to these iconic activities like football like the military like farming etc um in in the mo in what to me is one of the most iconic areas of this country which is west texas mm. I, I you know it's i think when you put football and, and things like that that you know that's an american ideal and, and it's an American thing like basketball and um, I, I love that you bring in like here's the Muslim culture you know being part of that because that really ties in also with your title of the book seventh flag as you made me go look up flag history because we were just in <laughs> Nacogdoches Texas the the oldest town of Texas and they have nine mm -hmm. flags and I'm like dude what are you doing with nine you've got seven and there's six it started with six what's going on with the flags of Texas <laughs> well uh, I'm I'm glad you raised that. So um, I grew up outside of Dallas, and um, that's where the original theme park, Six Flags, was built. Okay. Um, of course, well, now it's a, it's a it's a globalized brand. They're all over the place. But back then, um, uh, you know, no better day than when you know my parents would get me and my cousins, and we get in the town and country station wagon and go out to Six Flags. Um, and what that park, the way that park was, was structured, it was designed to sort of explain the six sovereigns that ruled over the state of Texas. Um, Mexico, France, um, the Confederacy, the United States, Texas, and um, the, uh, each little section of the park uh, would be kind of a, you know, this is pre way pre-web, so it's kind of, you know, hokey little thing, little exhibits or a ride or something. So, you know, th those were the, the six flags over Texas, six thousands. Now, the seventh flag, the, my notion of the seventh flag, is this flag over Texas or over our country um, that represents this ambiguous nationality, this conglomeration of people from um so many different countries and cultures and religions mm -hmm. and to you know so people think a little bit about you know what does it mean to be an american today 
Mm, I like that. I, I like the unity of it because I think we're just true. so we're little bits and parts of so many different cultures that um, we shouldn't be fighting with anybody because we're related to them. We're all connected. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, 2020 is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. And when you go into the history of the Mayflower, how people got here, wanting, you know, religious freedom. And here we are, you know, and we're in a country of religious freedom, but are we free? Like, are we acting in responsible freedom? You know what I mean? And so I think this is, uh, it's important to look at that. And the seventh flag, can, can we just make it that, like the seventh flag for the whole country? Or does it have to stay in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I mean, definitely for the whole country. And, you know, how I know this will air at a later date, but here we are speaking about this, right. about this commonality, um, the day after um, the impeachment of our president, <laughs> who, uh, who um, you know, not to be political, but who very clearly has strong views that are contrary to what we're, we're agreeing yes. on here. Yeah, it's, it's got to be true, interesting yeah. for you having traveled the world and traveled with presidents, you know, in national security as a national security, you know, correspondent, looking at this. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, you've got to be like going, like, are you like yelling at the TV <laughs> when you're watching this? Or <laughs> sometimes cheering, right? <laughs> going like, you know, what is going, I mean, this is like the, I, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, um, you know, I just, um, you know, sort of to that point, um, I just came off of a two month book tour, six driving 6,000 miles uh, down to the south, uh, into the southwest, up, up to New Mexico and Colorado and back across the Great Plains. Um, just really. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in nursing into your busy day. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Balance online coursework and in-person, local clinical, practicum, or immersion hours as you work towards graduation while leaving room for what matters. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. You know, seeing this amazing country and connecting with old and new friends, doing book events, talking at universities, uh, talking awesome. at private receptions. And um, it was, you know, I didn't have a lot of TV time. And so um, I was limited pretty much to the email I get from the New York Times every morning. And I have to say, it was a relief to be away from C-SPAN you know, and CNN and Fox News and, and all the yeah, you know the hysteria and uh, talking and, heads and anxiety. <laughs> it's so uh, yeah, yeah it's a it's an interesting time. And going on a book tour, you know, for us we we travel full time and we go. You know, it's it's interesting because you know, when you watch TV, you see the country 
as a very divided place. And yes, some of the statistics are showing that, but it's how people perceive them and how they're put out there. But as we travel, did you find this on your book tour that when you're dealing with in people one-on-one -on -one and you're connecting with them, that you can see more commonality than, than hatred and this you know, division in the sand that's being portrayed? Well, absolutely. Um, although, um, you know, I've talked a couple of times here um, about radicalized people. Mm. And, you know, there are, um, you know, in the theory of radicalization, there's sort of, if you look at it through a public health lens, um, and that's the way we looked at it in my last job, there's sort of three stages of, of radicalism, just like a disease primary, secondary, tertiary symptoms, primary, secondary, tertiary um, treatments. And each has different sorts. We identified different sorts of character, characteristics in a community as we looked at a community's resilience that would indicate to us where they were. And, you know, most of the people you encounter, at least those I did, um, were not, you know, you know, really were, if they were radicalized at all, you know, they were sort of in that first stage, kind of where we all are. But there are those out there who are really sort of beyond help. You know, they aren't going to book events. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, they're, they're playing video games. They're polishing their weapons. They're, yeah. they're putting finish, finishing touches on their safe rooms. And those are the people, whether they're you know, on the verge of joining ISIS or, or you know, white supremacists um, mm. that, that um, are the true threat in this country. Agreed. Um, and um, so, you know, while, while I encountered so many old and new friends, and, uh, you know, I, I still have, have worries about the lurkers. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's always the radicals. I mean, in growing up in Africa, you had that, you know, yet at the same time, you had these amazing people. And, you know, there's always everybody's, you know, you, even though they may be fighting like South Africa was, you know, very much people fighting. Yet at the same time, every time you, see, you <laughs> sat down with an Afrikaner, then you're going to believe their story. And if you sit down with, you know, with the, Brit, the British person, you're going to believe their story. And, and the Zulu, the Kosa and all of that, everybody's got a little bit of a different story. And then you do have the ones that, I mean, Nancy, uh, you know, Kenya, right? That's that. Yeah. It, it's scary because it becomes this mob. Like, look at Winnie Mandela. Look what she did. She, be, she was like that. And she mm. kind of grew, like she bred people into it. You know what I mean? It's not like she really kind of fostered that. And it was scary. There were times but in our lives. Was, of, yeah, yeah. She's just evil. She, she really was. Yeah, well, it's in evil, evil person. <laughs> well, it wasn't even, even a, political. It was just evil. Yeah, well, it's a sickness. But yeah. it's interesting you mentioned, to me, it's a sickness. You mentioned Africa. Um, mm. I've started, uh, I'm pretty much done with research for my next book. We're doing oh, cool. a series of s seven flag books, each awesome. of them about cool. similar themes about different diaspora communities in this country. And the next one is going to be about the Somalis. Oh. Um, of course, there's enormous refugee camps in Kenya yeah. that house mm -hmm. the Somalis, the largest in the world. 
Uh, it's been yeah. a great, great deal of time, both in Somalia over the years, covering the war in the 90s and, and since then, and in Kenya for work, researching. Mm -hmm. And um, I also spent a great deal of time in Minnesota, which has the largest Somali community in the country, um, and also a very large and virulent uh, white supremacist movement, surprisingly Ooh. enough. Um, been a lot of ISIS recruitment out of uh, the Somali community in Minneapolis. Um, so it's same same kinds of themes, and I'll be overlapping a little bit with some of some of the main characters from the original Seventh Flag, particularly my favorite character, Adamar Zarkhan, a Muslim girl who plays football and goes to West right Point on. and becomes a <laughs> crack army sniper and um so um you know africa whether it's africa kenya or west texas there's it's, yeah it's a problem it, it is it, it this is kind of off topic but not when in when as a correspondent when you're doing national security and you, you know talk about isis and we did a number of shows talking about the illegal wildlife trade and how it was yeah. right up there with terrorism and it was the internet mm -hmm. that was doing this illegal wildlife trade. And I, you know, you'd go on Instagram and see, um, you know, these princes with, you know, tigers and che cheetahs, they had cheetahs mostly. Did you see any of that in your research when you, you were, you know, out there? I mean, cause that was kind of a, remember there was like a connection of that being the same people. Yes. Oh. Right. Well, um, of course, all these movements require a great deal of money. Um, if you recall, um, when ISIS had its so-called caliphate, they had seized uh, vast oil fields and vast um, reserves of gold to fund what they were doing. Um, and um, whether it's you know the cartel in Mexico or mm. um, the Zetas in Guatemala, wherever, it's, uh, they all require money. And they figure out ways to to um, to do that. I mean, these are vast criminal ventures. Mm -hmm. And I recall one once one series of stories I did back when I was a reporter, daily reporter, um, was about the Pentagon's efforts to uh, to counter it by arming and training um, poaching patrols in in Kenya or mm -hmm. or elsewhere. Um, and, you know, they spent a fair bit of money uh, doing it, but, you know, whether it's ivory or diamonds or cocaine or meth, uh, you know, that those are all kind of off the book type um, ways to collateralize crime. Hmm. I mean, it's as old as, as the mafia. Yeah. When when we lived in Kenya, I was working um, with Joy Adamson, and she told me mm -hmm. that um, the Somalis would cross over the border and set um, fires in in the game parks and such on on the on the borders, and then all the rangers would rush out to fight the fire, and then they go into the park on the other side and shoot animals. Did you ever come yeah. across anything like that? Oh, all kinds of all kinds of schemes like that. I mean. <laughs> I have to laugh. I have to laugh not at that, but just the other day, uh, I watched Born Free again for some oh, reason. Wow. You know, oh. the story, story of Joy Adamson and Elsa yeah. the Tiger. Of course, I was in 
almost in tears as you know at, at the end when it's hugger for those kind of moments but uh wow but How you know the I, <laughs> timing you know the idea yeah i know you know the idea of uh the slaughters of elephants you know these, mm-hmm. these intelligent uh noble so human-like creatures uh, oh yeah just really really stro- kills me i can't even you know or um, yeah you know, or or in in the oceans with with dolphins and whales it's uh yeah you know, you know which are also also prey to poaching that that's that's what i was saying it's all this this connection and then it's that power thing again you know it's it is that power that greed and and i it just seems to take off like a wildfire and at the other t- and then the other side of that coin is people get paranoid and then they become almost the same way if that makes sense there's like that mirror thing that the, the white supremacy part is it's i think it's well, really think it's based on fear. fear yeah it's that fear Just, that paranoia yeah i think they're scared mm-hmm. i mean well that's that's, that's what that's what's going on in our country in my view yeah. right now Mm-hmm. Is this action react reaction mm-hmm. type thing? But I have to say the um, you know the white supremacist movement in this country is is scarier than anything else to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I mean these people these people are smart. They're dug in. They're well armed. They understand the law. They have a certain kind of support in our feel like they have a certain mm-hmm. kind of support in our current environment. And I yeah. think. You know, they're all, they're all voters. Um, they understand the need to vote, and um, you know they're being you know they're enabling some of the worst things. Our our, our leaders are enabling some of their worst um, intentions. Yeah, exactly. It's like reversing the last forty years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, we. I feel like we're going back to like the real old racist, ignorant days mm-hmm. that we climbed out of. You know what I mean? That's what it feels like. Well, well I, I feel that. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder whether we're going back or or possibly um, just demolishing. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I have faith in, in, in our country, faith in our people, our faith in the durability of our constitution to support yeah. the notion, the notion of this nation, the experiment of this nation. And I'm hopeful. And yeah. I'm a hopeful person. Well, I yeah. think books and, you know, going from being a, you know, a, a journalist to writing fiction, I think they're both forms are both type styles of writing are so important in regards to education. But I think fiction, like movies, has a way to get people to kind of soften and take things in. You know, get it's an easier way to get them out of their comfort zone, <laughs> you know, to 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 hear about things maybe they didn't know. You know, open their mind a little bit. And did you feel that in writing? And was it like, what's it like going into fiction? Because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> actually, that's got to be like a little bit more powerful in a way, right? <laughs> well, you know, it was liberating actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, being a being a journalist most of my life, uh, writing historical fiction is like a journalist dream mm. you, know, you can make up all the quotes you can yeah. change the story a little bit <laughs> you can make up characters um you know which is which was a lot of fun um but you know your point there the underlying point about the power of the media whether it be um you know news or 
movies or streaming content. I mean, it's just enormous these days. And um, in my view, one of the most dangerous things going on in our country now is this effort, um, this successful effort um, to discredit um, the news, you know, the so-called fake news. Oh, yeah. Um, you it's know, and, and, you know, it's very dangerous. And you see it, you see it in other countries, you know, yep. like it or not, the rest of the world takes it or did and is taking its lead from the United States. And you see journalists being killed and mm. blown up and arrested and jailed in other countries, um, you know, with just complete dis nonchalance and disregard mm -hmm. because they know there'll be no ramifications. You know. It that the whole idea of the press corps, the the way I was brought up, I was taught that the press was the watchdog of the government. And so that's the the press is what stands between being under a dictator or not. More so well, than that's army. Why they, yeah. Yeah. That's why so, they call it the fourth the fourth estate. You know, the fourth mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have the three pillars of of oversight um, and um, governance in our country, the Congress, the executive branch, and the judiciary, and then you have the fourth estate, so-called fourth mm -hmm. estate, the media. Yeah. Um, and if you know when, you know when our you know no you know I never I covered three uh, two presidents, President mm -hmm. Bush and President Clinton. I I knew them a little bit. I traveled. Um, on their planes with them when they go overseas and got to know them a bit. Um, and, you know, they didn't uh, necessarily like what they were reading, but they were certainly respectful of the right of uh, the, the rights of the media. Mm -hmm. And they also understood the power of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, our current president clearly does not. Yeah. Or he, I'm sorry, let me change that. He does. And he he, he um, understands the power of being able to manipulate it in his favor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Traveling yeah. with George Bush had to be fun because he's got a sense of humor and he does yeah, really. He's, he's a great artist. <laughs> he's a great artist. Uh -huh. that, that's what that's that's my comment. So, no, um, and, and well, that was the that was the first George Bush. Oh, it was the senior, first one. Not okay. Not not W. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Because but say he w. but. Yeah, W was no W was um, after my time. Although mm. I did do some work um, on behalf of his admin mm. administration in the foreign aid area, um, his father was a, a true gentleman, mm -hmm. and uh, and also had a great sense of humor. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, had a had a wonderful sense of humor. We uh, there was this game we used to play on their airplanes, liars poker. Where you uh, you conjure conjure up a uh, poker hand out of the serial numbers on a dollar bill, and the press corps would you know spend hours in the back of the plane flying wherever um, doing that. And sometimes um, the presidents would come back, or Bill Clinton would come back and play liars poker with us. Oh, and uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> he was very good at it. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's funny. I, I always wondered what happened up on those planes. You know what it what it's got to be like. You know, so I've got to ask the seventh flag. 
you know, I'm glad you're doing a series because I think this is excellent. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you've got, got your newspaper in there too, that the Herald's in there. That's a good thing. I knew you had yeah. to have, you had yeah. to have the newspaper in there. Um, Seventh Flag, do you see this as being like a, like a Netflix series or a Hulu series or something That'd like that? Cool. Well, um, I would very much like that. Yeah. Um, my agent is is working very hard to make that happen. Good. Um, you, you know, getting a um, getting your first book into print is hard. I was lucky and got it happened pretty quickly. Um, I would say the same thing about movies or streaming streaming series. I mean, there is such a huge demand now for it, but you know, so much of it depends on someone of prominence liking the idea and uh, and then a whole string of people backing it. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm hopeful. Um, I think it very, I think so. And mm. my readers and, and others, um, you know, that's kind of a universal comment mm. um, is that it would, would, would be a, a good one. So any of your audience out there who's in the business, <laughs> Come on, call. call Sid. Call Sid. <laughs> well, I mean, because you're really an excellent writer. So you just you're yeah, in a, immediately, cool. and then you know someone Thank knocks you. on your door and you're like, "No, you're not cleaning my room yet." <laughs> the hotel never. <laughs> like, no, leave me alone. <laughs> but it's just like, no, leave me. No, it really. I I really. Um, Nancy and I both love you know historical fiction, and when it's and mm-hmm. it's it, it to really make an impact, it has to be done really well, and you really. Uh, you opened my eyes to things I didn't know about. I thank you for the camels, the camel history. Yeah. I'm really appreciative <laughs> of that. I know it sounds crazy, but it, I am. Um, but you really uh, bring history to life and now make you think. And uh, just, it was such a, just so well-written, really. I, I, I'm rooting mm-hmm. for this to win all kinds of prizes and, you know, bestsellers and just keep going with them. <laughs> keep going. Well, uh, so- you, you're, you're so kind to the, um, so um, it is selling well. Um, Good. They were my, my publisher's doing a second printing. We're nearly oh, wow. sold out of the first one. Oh, congratulations! So awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh. And the reviews have been good. Universally yeah. good reviews. You are getting good reviews. Um, everyone, go to Sid's website. It's sidbalman.com. I'm going to spell that again uh, because you can spell Sid in different ways. It's S-I-D-B-A-L-M-A-N, sidbalman.com. Uh, of course, you can get on Amazon, all those places, Barnes & Noble. Um, but I always think it's good to connect directly with the author on their website so you can follow them on social media, uh, find, find them when they're going on tour, and uh, just learn more about them. It's always good to go right to the website. Again, the book is Seventh Flag by Sid Wellman Jr. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us here, Sid. It's been such a wonderful conversation, and uh, I hope to see you back soon with your next book. Well, Nancy and Lisa, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, I hope to hear back from you soon. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you, audience. Of course, our shows air Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. I'll just go to bigblendradio.com to choose which way you want to listen because they're all our podcasts go everywhere from iTunes or Apple, if you want to say that, uh, to Google, to YouTube, Spreaker, Blog Talk, you name it. It's, it's all there. And uh, we also want to uh, play a song for you. We love playing music for our guests, of course, for our audience too. And this song is from, you know, the first lady of music of Texas. Uh, Shelly King was based out of Austin and uh, she was the first state musician, a female state musician. And uh, this is off of her album, Fan Faves. And we will have her back on the show soon. She's got a brand new album out. Uh, It's called Texas Blue Moon. So it's a beautiful song. So here it is, Texas Blue Moon.
Thanks, Sid. Thank you. A perfect night, the sky is clear. You say the things I want to hear. Ooh, riding shotgun windows down. You got me. Palm of your hand, the radio is playing my favorite band. Ooh, all my heartstrings come unwound. All I need is you and a Texas blue moon. All I need is you and a Texas blue Texas Blue Moon